0: Thanks so much to all of you for being here, and mostly to you, Uh Sylvia, for being here. And to you. (laughs) Thanks. Um, So I want to tell you a a bit of background on how this event came about. This was was an opportunity of a lifetime for me, I have to say. When the organizers of WOMAD contacted me and told me who was going to be here, I said, what I would love to do is have a conversation with Dr. Earl. Because I had the opportunity to interview Sylvia back in 2007, and I'm telling the story that I told yesterday to you directly because um, I have to tell you, this has transformed my work. And I know if you didn't have a chance to be here earlier, that you will now have the chance to be transformed. I was doing an interview and we were talking about, I, I just finished reading uh, Dr. Earl's book, Sea Change, and um, and it was for a television show in the United States, and, and I was the host, and I said, Dr. Earl, our fish stocks are 90% depleted. And I kind of, I walked into this space, into our interview space, with just a lot of grief. And uh, Sylvia leaned in, and she said, yes, but the other 10%. And that was so transformative for me. And I have repeated this story so many times because truly there hasn't been anyone else that I have had the opportunity to interview. And I have interviewed, I have to say, like with the grace of God, a lot of environmental icons. I mean, really. But there is exactly one who has transformed the way I look at my work and that is the woman to my right. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Earl. Thank you to all of you. It is such an honor, and I have to say one more thing. It is such an honor to be uh, getting to sit beside Sylvia across two hemispheres for International Women's Day. So thank you for blazing that trail as well. So this um, session, the other session that that Dr. Earl was in was about the deep blue, and this one is about another deep place, and that is hope. And this is what I would specifically asked if I could do, was have a conversation with Dr. Earl about hope, um, because she's inspired me, as I said, like no other. So um, in I want to start kind of esoterically and kind of go from there, and we'll weave in our work accordingly. But in an article about the Ocean Atlas, you said, if you can go to that deepest place, you can go anywhere. And so what I want to do for a minute is take that out of that context of the ocean and talk about it in terms of touching the deepest place within someone and connecting. um, So we can actually start to heal our lands and our water and I would say our relationships with each other, which seem to be um, in a really uh, challenged, disparate place. So how do you approach that in your work, The, the notion of the deep being something that exists within us?
1: Well, some of my learned colleagues have looked at the world, knowing what they know, and essentially have given up and say, there's just nothing that can be done at this point in time. We set in motion unwittingly, perhaps, but nonetheless, the impact of humankind on the nature of the world is so deep and so profound that there just isn't anything that we can do I think I'll just sit back and have a good time with the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. The kids will figure it out somehow or not, <laughs> and I—I I don't have any patience with them because I just don't. Mm-hmm. There's something that there's always something that can be done to make whatever it is better than it would be if you do nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just you know to give up is is just not acceptable, that's all. It just isn't, especially when you really look at situations such as we talked about some years ago. Half the coral reefs are gone, oh, woe is us. Well, we should be concerned, but half of them are still in pretty good shape. They're not all gone yet. We're still alive, right? We can still breathe, right? And as long as you've got time, life, and can see how you can make things go from where they are to a better place. There's reason to get busy and 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 do it. Uh, reason for hope. Plenty of reason for hope. Now, one of my colleagues, whom I treasure as a friend, during a previous panel at this meeting, Charles Vernon, um, huh, in a way, he hasn't given up, but. He is very concerned about the things that we've set in motion with respect to coral reefs and feels that there's not much we can do. We're going to see the end of coral reefs by the end of this century, maybe sooner. Or maybe not, because there are things that we can do that will turn things around if we do what we have available to us right now. Now that we know what the problem is, there's a chance we can find solutions. There's no chance if you don't know, because you can't care if you don't know, but there's plenty of reason right now to, armed with knowledge that didn't exist when I began exploring the ocean, we have a better chance now than ever before of securing for us an enduring place in the future. Instead of just saying, oh, it's, it's over. It's done. Might as well just sit back and <laughs> eat chocolate and drink wine.
0: <laughs> Until they're gone, too. Until they're gone, too. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to let those go, either. Um, okay, I, I, this is, I think this is so important because it is so easy with this glut of information to fall into deeper despair. And what you're actually saying is, now no, that we have it... this is
1: the best time ever. I exactly. tell kids, choose a time to be born... Choose now, choose now. Actually, uh, I had a big conversation with Jackson Brown, the the singer, Uh, well it was in 2010, we were on an expedition to the Galapagos Islands and it was that plus other things that happened during that expedition but Jackson Brown has written a song. If I could be anywhere in time, it would be now. Mm. It would be now because now we know what could not be known any time before. That gives us hope because we're empowered with knowing, with knowledge. We, we have the capacity to see what the smartest people who have ever lived before couldn't see because we didn't have satellites in the sky or astronauts walking on the moon to give us a perspective of, of something about who we are within the greater universe. I mean, anybody now can stand out at night and look at the sky armed with new insight into how precious this planet is and to be inspired to value what we didn't, we took for granted before, certainly I did as a kid, that oxygen in the atmosphere, it was just there. It's always been there. It will always be there, except now we know that it's vulnerable to our actions. And we have to consciously make an effort to take care of our life support system. Before, who who knew? I mean, we, we were headed down a track that could lead us to a, a really bad place. <laughs> but armed with knowing we have the power to stop the bad things we're doing and do more of the good things that will keep us on a steady course for a long and enduring future. And I'm not alone in this optimism one of my my great heroes ed wilson you probably know the biodiversity voice of biodiversity the voice for ants for heaven's sakes exactly. at harvard university he's the ant treasured ant man but he's a lot more than that he's a poet of science and does see what we're talking about what is really the topic of this whole conference about where are we uh, who are we and, and where can we go from this point in time one hopes to a better place and it's clear that we're going we're in a tight spot right now with respect to climate change the pressure on water on food on on places for people to live with 7 billion of us it's tougher every year as our numbers increase the pressures on the natural system systems that make our lives possible those pressures increase but with knowing we can figure out how do we have a lighter footprint how do we stress the systems less when we were just oblivious to the consequences of taking fish using the equivalent of bulldozers of strip mining the ocean of the life that's there of doing to the ocean, what it took us 10,000 years to do on the land of decreasing the diversity of life of, of changing the chemistry of the atmosphere, we're changing the chemistry of the ocean, which would be a real problem, except that now we know we've got a problem and we can do something about
0: it so I want to I want to play um, I don't know if it's devil's advocate for a moment, but or,
1: or are you the devil?
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's why I, was, I wasn't sure if <laughs> I wanted to take on that role. But um, but I do. You know, you're you're asking this question of like what we or you're 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 saying now we have the knowledge. It's there. And so we now. And I'll say what Oprah says. Now that you know better, you do better, right? Once you know better, you do better, oh, which well, is you wish. I mean, one would hope, right? Yeah. But that's, um, and I don't want to overplay this term hope too much, but the, the question becomes, you know, what do you want to do, as Mary Oliver says, the poet, with this one wild and precious life? And what some people are choosing to do is not heal this earth right now. And, you know, I have framed this a lot because I have been full of grief over the question of why, haven't, why hasn't, Why haven't we seen more traction? Everyone knows we should turn the lights off. Everyone knows that we should not drink out of plastic water bottles. Everyone, these things are known now. These aren't mysteries to us anymore, yet, in the face of this, some people are making different sets of decisions. Now, I would say it's not because they don't care, but rather because they have different cares and different priorities. But what I want to know is underneath that, regardless of that awareness that, hey, you know, we have these kind of psychological reasons that we're not working in the exact same way, it doesn't, it doesn't um, absolve my grief. And I feel deep grief over this. And, I mean, you've been out this probably for longer than I've been around. And I just wonder how you're not impatient and angry and a little bit jaded at this point. I mean, you had up no you think Noah. I'm not. Okay, <laughs> so this is the question, right? Help me. Help me to, to, to be like you, even more like you, and, and, um, and fold that in. But keep moving forward. Help us all. Can you share some wisdom around this?
1: Kids don't know that it's impossible. Oh. So you can get a lot of hope from kids. If you don't know that something is not possible, you, you, amazingly, you can make things happen that nobody knew could happen. Huh. So it's just, don't give up just because people say you can't do it. Okay. In fact, that should be an incentive to get out and show that they're wrong.
0: Yeah. And, and I love the idea of also like recognizing that all these pieces... Are tied together, which is something that you mentioned in your TED talk. I want to quote from it. Um, 97% of the Earth's water um, is ocean. No blue, no green. If you think the ocean isn't important, imagine Earth without, without it, excuse me. Mars comes to mind. No ocean, no life support. Right, and um, and then you go on to talk about this question of like what it would mean to care for one tenth of not our planet but our heart, and this idea that like we don't cleave this away, and that everything is interconnected. That one out of every five breaths that we take is the result of the ocean.
1: No, of one kind of, of creature algae, in the ocean. Right? Yeah. Prochlorococcus. Everybody should learn the word prochlorococcus because it's it gives you twenty five one in every five breaths you take. And its existence wasn't known until 1986. It was a woman oceanographer from MIT with her colleagues in an expedition off Bermuda using a new technique for looking at plankton, discovering this ultra, ultra tiny little powerhouse that that it does much of the heavy lifting in terms of generating oxygen, taking up carbon, driving food webs throughout the ocean globally. Now it's one kind of powerful blue-green microbe, a kind of bacteria, actually, photosynthetic bacteria, with number of variations. Uh, and not to know of its existence until 1986. What else is out there that we don't know about that we should be respecting and that we've, we should be... under, You know, we we, we need to lose some of our arrogance, <laughs> most of it, in fact. We think we rule the world. We still have this attitude that earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the universe all revolves around us. It's deeply embedded in our, <laughs> in our psyche. And learning that we are a part of nature, subject to the laws of nature, whatever they are, we're just at this wonderful stage of seeing what we could not see before. I can't say it often enough, that the kids are armed with with knowledge and all of us have the capacity to use that in creative ways. We don't have to accept the things that have happened before just because it's the way things were done. It was Charles Darwin who famously pointed out, successful organisms, success, whatever it is, depends not on the strongest or the smartest individuals. It depends on the adaptability, the capacity to change with, with, with time. Times are changing. Can we adapt to a, a new, the new knowledge that is out there and the new circumstances that are a reality? The planet is warming. The ocean is acidifying. We're losing the diversity of life. What can we do to stabilize to the extent that we have the power to do that by protecting the natural systems that work in our favor, take the pressure off our life support system and figure out better ways of feeding ourselves, better ways of tapping into the energy that our civilization requires. We really don't have to rely on fossil fuels anymore now that we know the downside, and we also have alternatives that actually were mostly developed because we have fossil fuels that give us communication, that give us insight, give us knowledge. That's why this is the sweet spot in time. It's, it's the best time ever. We now can see a way forward. It's been costly to get us here. We have burned through a lot of assets, and I don't mean just fossil fuels, I mean, we have consumed much of the natural world as the cost of our prosperity. But we're just at this point that either we will continue until there aren't any fish anymore. (laughs) I mean, we're 10% of the sharks. We could kill them all. We know how to do that. We came perilously close to killing all the whales. When you look at where they were and where they got to be by the 1980s when we finally stopped, by and large, we're seeing a little turn uptick in the prosperity of whales and other marine mammals of birds you know we did eliminate many species because we didn't stop soon enough mm-hmm. we now can see the evidence we know how to kill can we learn how to care oh. huh. that's There's the key.
0: A challenge <laughs> everything you're talking about to me goes back to once you know it, you can love it. And then you can start to return to it and care for it again. And it seems that a lot of what's happening now has been motivated by either love or fear.
1: Well, it's not just loving it. It's also we need it. Yeah. We need the natural world. It is, Of course, <laughs> it's an emotional response. to Once you know about those big, cuttlefish that live in your backyard here in Adelaide. How could you think of eating them? But people do eat cuttlefish. I've seen them belly up, arms splayed out in the Tokyo fish market. I guess they taste good or else they wouldn't be there. But when you know what it takes to make a cuttlefish, and once you've seen them underwater and been approached by them, if you haven't, you live here for heaven's sakes. Go jump in the water with a mask and and get acquainted with some smart creatures with big brown eyes that look at you with curiosity. And once you've had that experience, it's just beyond <laughs> my imagination that you'd want to, you know, eat it. I mean, maybe that's just very a primal thing in all organisms. You want to know when you see something strange, is it going to eat me or can I eat it? <laughs> it's very... Um, neanderthal but it's
0: also it's perpetuated by media and i have to say i mean you are one of my heroes and i am scared to death of the ocean because when i was six years old i saw jaws and i kid you not it terrified me and that's how i have been operating in my life i had a jellyfish attack once and i was done and it it is one of the very few things in the world that i'm scared of so I may be the only person in this room scared of the ocean, but in case what I'm not... What you're afraid
1: of is the unknown.
0: Yeah, I well, and the deep blue and these gigantic beings. Can you describe for us, you were the first woman who walked untethered on the ocean floor. Can you please, for any of us who won't make it there... Tell us what that is like. Can you describe? Because I think a lot of the problem with with the oceans is, you know, what you said earlier, we can't miss what we don't know. And that is the frontier that is least familiar to us. So will you take us there for a minute, please?
1: (laughs) I think I'm in the company of a lot of people who've taken the plunge. My mother was 81 before she put on a mask and, and stepped into the ocean and looked around and saw fish swimming in something other than lemon slices and butter. And uh, and she, she came back, she, I mean she was so excited and told her friends that they shouldn't wait any longer if they were 81, that still wasn't too late, you know that anyway, it's something that anybody can do and we. Sh- we should make it a mission to go diving together. Oh, dear because dear God! I think did I could, you hear this? Oh my God! Could change, I'm have a heart attack!
0: <laughs> yes. Change your view,
1: or take you down a little submarine if you don't like getting wet. Well, you do take I a like shower, though, wet. don't you? I like getting
0: wet. I'm just scared of sharks.
1: <laughs> no, I mean Peter. Benchley, once he realized what he, the horrible thing that he did when he wrote Jaws, he, he doesn't have anything against sharks. He was just telling a good story. But people took seriously. Yeah. The fact that sharks have an attitude and that they're out to get us. I used to think that, too. That's what I was told when I started diving, that uh, there are man-eaters out there. And then I realized, I don't qualify. Neither do you. <laughs> and later, I mean, it, it, clearly, sharks are—we're not on their menu. Uh, we're just not. Occasionally... A curious shark. I mean, they don't have hands to touch. They have only teeth to bite with if they are curious about something. So many of the uh, alleged attacks are, well, what is this thing? Take a bite. But basically it doesn't happen at all. Think of how many bites we take out of sharks. I mean, millions of sharks are killed now every year to satisfy the human appetite for a shark steak or shark fin soup or whatever it is. I mean, if... If they wanted to get after us, we could be in trouble every time we go in the water, except there are far fewer sharks now than there were when I started diving. Still, we are relentless about taking sharks. It's just terrible. We just need to give it up, do everything we can to do what nations such as Palau have done. And just last week, the Federation States of Micronesia have declared all of their waters to be a sanctuary for sharks. I mean, we need to yeah, do more of this. Why doesn't Australia protect all of its sharks? There are there are allies in maintaining a world world that works in their favor and in our favor. We need them.
0: That's such a critical word that you mentioned, allies. Because I think we have been conditioned, even now, I mean, I don't know if it, it runs here, but there's a television channel in the United States called the Discovery Channel. Every year they have a very popular week called Shark Week, and they are our adversaries. And, and they, we have created this kind of, you know, it's us it's against It's so the
1: egocentrical. We're not on the sharks' minds at all. <laughs> <laughs> They've been around what? for like 300 million years and humans have been around a relatively, really short period of time, and we think that they're out to get us? No, mm-hmm. they, they have their own habits that have been developed over, you know, hundreds of millions of years. We're simply incidental newcomers in their ancient realm. Mm-hmm. It's very self-centered for us to think that they give a hoot about humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah We're, They may see us as pests. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly not as adversaries. Well, we, that maybe they should think of us as adversaries, because we are killing them at an unprecedented scale. They've, there's never been a predator in the ocean to match what humans are doing to the ocean now. Armed with technologies to find every last tuna, every last cod, every last whatever it is that we have our our eye on to to extract, we're really good at at stripping the ocean of life.
0: So how do you contend with this grief and this anger that you acknowledge that you have?
1: Do everything I can to share the view of, as a witness of change during this most extraordinary time and try to inspire people to get out and see for themselves, <laughs> because it's there. We're all witnesses to this most amazing point in history, and we're all, as, as no people who've ever lived before, we have the power of knowing, of using the knowledge that we have in ways each of us has different way, a, a, that's special, that's unique. I can't do what any one of you can do, and and I have a particular power that comes from having thousands of hours underwater and, and getting, as a scientist, uh, armed with knowing kind of something about where we fit in, this greater scheme of the diversity of life on Earth. So what's to be sad about? It's like, huh, let me add it. <laughs> this is a moment that, as never before, we've got a chance. Let's get out there and... Use our power, turn things around. We can do this, and now's the time.
0: It's so interesting. There was an essay that was written by um, a, a man named Derek Jensen in an environmental magazine called Orion, and he said hope. And I'm paraphrasing. He didn't. He said this much more eloquently, but basically, that hope was useless. That hope was an idea. It wasn't engagement. And I, um, I think of Emily Dickinson saying, hope is the thing with feathers. Yes. And, and there was a story in Greek mythology about hope. Pandora, as you may remember, was um, Zeus's punishment for Prometheus stealing fire. And so, and then Pandora brought all the, here's how the myth goes, Pandora opened up a box, all the evils came out into the world and she destroyed what was once perfect and good. And the more I researched this, because I really wanted to explore what, what Derek Jensen was talking about, because I, I, I disagreed, but I didn't really know why. And so the more I researched, the more um, I read feminist theory that said that, that um, Pandora, what she opened was a vessel, and who she was, was all of us. She was a wife, she was a mother, she was a householder. And pithos, and I'm probably butchering all the Greek, but pithos was a vessel. It wasn't a box. And what she opened were the things that we needed for survival that only later became Maleficent. And, um, and that what stayed, you know, in the, in the traditional narrative, it's like hope was the only thing that was captured right? So we managed to hang on to this thing, hope. But, but the, um, the theory and the, and the sort of the narratives that I have read said hope perhaps stayed behind. Hope was a spirit um, named Elpis. And, and this, this representation of Elpis was grain. So it was almost this idea that hope was actually impregnated with everything. It was the potential of seed. everything. Exactly, the yeah. seed. And I just thought that was so fascinating because the notion then became not hope as sort of this thing flying around with feathers, you know, which is beautiful, but also maybe ethereal and not you know, fully formed, but rather, hope was the seed for everything. And without that, we wouldn't, nothing would manifest.
1: Have you read the Lorax, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Seuss, <laughs> my hero? <laughs> Yay, you know, there too, the hope was a seed of what could be restored.
0: Exactly, exactly. So what seeds do we have to plant? You know, human beings suffer from... We've got them,
1: got a lot of kids out there.
0: We have a lot (laughs) of kids out there. I'm thinking of two of my nephews every time, and I think of your grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, um, human beings suffer from single action bias. So we love to just learn one thing and then move on. But we understand this is a journey. But I would like to know, if, if you were to suggest understanding what we know about the oceans, the, like the very first thing every single person in this room should do or not do or encourage people to do or not do, what that would be?
1: Well, there are a number of avenues to make this happen, but it's a question I've been asking myself, struggling with for years. Everything you can, whatever avenue it is, to embrace the systems that are still in good shape land and sea mm-hmm. protecting the natural world is is vital to our existence we don't know how to recreate a natural system whether it's a desert a rainforest a coral reef or the deep sea we know how to destroy it we we're really good at doing that but putting the pieces back together again, the best hope we have is protecting what remains of the fabric of a world that got us to where we are. We've been chewing away at the assets, taking down the trees, destroying the diversity of life, and not just the individual species, but the entire systems that that represent the collective actions of so many individual species. and doing what we can to restore what's been damaged or lost. But highest priority is look at Earth as your life support system, learn everything you can about it, then do everything you can to take care of it. Whether it's in your backyard, improving a backyard system as a more attractive habitat for birds and other wildlife seems like a small thing. But you know, if every one of the seven billion people on the planet did that small thing, or even if half of them, or even if a tenth of them did something as simple as what you can do in your backyard, dig up your lawn, put in something other than, than fertilizer, water-hungry grass. I mean, you can keep a little patch if you want, but get you know, th- think of nature, a, a natural system. Work with the plants that occur in a place naturally. My mother did this, oh goodness, and got rid of the lawn. She didn't have much to start with, but planted wildflowers. And the neighbors didn't much like the idea. And when she was gone, visiting me in California, this was her home in Florida, they got the city of Dunedin, Florida, to come in and take what she had planted and mow it down to, you know, that level. There's a city ordinance that said if you have weeds... The city can come in and cut them down. Well, these weren't weeds. They were wildflowers and native trees, young ones that she planted. Well, it created a... It's my mom. <laughs> my warrior mom. And she made it to the front page of the Wall Street Journal of, you know, planting <laughs> native things. <laughs> and, and it inspired some of her, her neighbors to start doing the same thing. One of them... Put up a sign on his lo- on his what was a lawn before, and he said "mow, no mow." <laughs> <laughs> he was was liberated. He didn't have to get out the lawnmower anymore, and he it, it did something really, you know, good, a tiny thing, but an important thing. So, think, just be creative. Look in the mirror. What can you think of that will restore the health to the planet and it, change your eating habits? Perhaps eating tuna is not a good idea for you. Think Mercury and all the rest. It's also not good for the ocean. We're down to a fraction of what they were, 10% maybe of, of some of the most sought after species like the blue fins. And, and you know, here's where they were when I started diving, here's where they are today. We keep doing this, they'll be gone. We, we know how to follow that trajectory. We also know, as in the whales, stop killing them and there's hope. They might, they might not come back, but they, they have the best chance if we stop killing them. It just seems so obvious. And we can do it.
0: It does. That's the astonishing thing. It's like, stop using all this plastic. Yeah. I mean, you know, the numbers are I com- staggering. I Five come from
1: trill- the pre-plasticozoic. The pre-what? <laughs> the pre-plasticozoic. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> There aren't any plastics in the ocean, or actually, there, there's some, we had some plastic containers, uh, uh, Tupperware, we had Tupperware parties, uh, and I still have some of those Tupperwares, yeah. decades ago, we don't throw them away, no. it's the single use plastics, you had some statistics. To. I do
0: have statistics. Listen to this. Okay, um, I should have brought my glasses. Five trillion pieces of plastic weighing more than 250,000 tons floating in the water around the world with a global population of about 7.2 billion. That's nearly 700 pieces per person. Huh. In our lifetime. I mean, this is astonishing that we swapped out um, convenience, I guess, would be the best way to say, or that we thought this is what we needed, which I think is also a part of this whole... It's marketing, it's marketing but it's also it's what you said. It has changed. It has come about since the days of Tupperware, since the 1970s, and it can change again, it can. which is critical.
1: And we can, we can be that successful creature. It may not be the strongest or the smartest, <laughs> but if we are adaptable to change, I think that is smart.
0: What does it look like when they talk about these dead zones in the ocean? I mean, what does this look like to you, the, the masses? I mean, is it this sort of... I've, I've heard it described as this kind of spongy, these areas. No, of- well,
1: it can be... It's Dead zones did not... That's a term Again. that has developed to describe trouble in mostly coastal areas in the ocean that are low in oxygen because of a heightened amount of fertilizer quotes, nutrients, but runoff from agriculture, and also toxins that tend to kill a great number of creatures, but the survivors are the tough ones. Mm -hmm. And some of the phytoplankton that can grow very fast with the nitrates and phosphates that enter the sea, and they grow so fast, they consume the oxygen, they die, and everything else dies as well. Uh, the fish, the crabs, the low oxygen is the key. And now, curiously, there are some phenomena in the, in the open ocean, in the deep sea. And the, the causes are not quite, we, hard, they're hard to pin down. We don't mm-hmm. know exactly what's going on, except that the new things are happening in the ocean. Shifting currents, uh, deep ocean water coming up into shallower water and causing uh, areas of fish kill that, that are just surprising. Off the coast of Oregon in the United States, the northwestern coast, just in recent years, massive die-offs that appear not to be related to agriculture, but still dead zones. So think masses of dying fish and You other see organisms. them, or is it just oh, yeah. sort of like this... Po- okay. Oh, no, you can see them it's not right?
0: well not, that would be yeah terrible terrible to witness i um i will tell you since since we spoke just yesterday and you mentioned the curiosity of the cephalopods <laughs> i thought about eating this octopus this exquisite exquisite octopus i ate in lima peru that made me cry which is the first time food has made me cry and now i think of this already in a different way and um I'm not going to eat it again, but I just, you know, it's more this this question of culture, like what is acceptable in one culture to consume, you know, the, sushi used to be under the purview of sort of, uh, you know, or is a, an abundance of seafood was something that belonged to, you know, Southeast Asia, but now, you know, in the middle of the United States, in the Midwest, where there is no, you know, there is no access to ocean, people want, their tuna sushi just like, you know, someone in, you know, Kyoto you can, would. You
1: can learn to eat it and you can learn to not eat it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have choices.
0: Do you eat it, any, any fish at all? Well, any I, aquatic I used life? to.
1: I come from a family growing up near the sea in New Jersey and then Florida. But I can't anymore because I know too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know what the fish and other creatures have in them that I don't want in me. That's the reason number 1 but actually reason number 1 is i know how valuable fish are alive and i don't want to be part of the problem by by uh, you know every fish i don't eat is a fish that potentially could be out there doing its wonderful thing in the ocean the ocean needs and, and we need it, we need a healthy ocean and a healthy ocean needs fish we except for coastal communities that don't have many choices where you know Fish is vital to the the survival of some. But that's not true of 7 billion people. Most of us have many other choices about what to eat. And the cost of a fish is typically not truly accounted for. We, we think of fish as free, right? I got into trouble when I was the chief scientist of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the United States, because... I kept pointing out to the National Marine Fisheries Service that they'd accounted for fish with a zero accounting base until they're dead. A live fish was worth nothing. It's only when you kill them (laughs) that they had a value. That's when they started calling me the sturgeon general Mm -hmm. because because I was making a fuss about the fish. He said that a fish alive has to be at least as valuable as a fish dead. And when you take it out of the ocean, why aren't you subtracting something from the balance sheet? Because, you know, it's gone, you take it away, and and yet you think of them as valuable only when you've taken them out of the big bank account, the ocean. And we're depleting that bank account, depleting the assets, now 90% of many of the big fish, gone since the 1970s, huh? yet we just blithely go on continuing to to kill, thinking that they will somehow magically replenish themselves, and magically they're not. They're not. We kid ourselves into thinking that we can sustainably take large quantities of wildlife. Well, we can sustainably take small quantities, if we're really smart about the methods. Trawlers? Huh, why... Why even think of taking fish with these giant trawlers that are so destructive? You're not just taking large numbers of fish; you're killing the ecosystem that makes the fish. I mean, so you get a double loss on the on the balance sheet if you are accounting for them at all. I, I anyway, you can see why I wasn't popular with the National Marine Fisheries Service. <laughs> but I, you know, I think that it's not that I'm against fishing or fishermen; it's just that. Knowing what we now know, the new understanding, the reality, that we're so good at finding and capturing what lives in the sea, that we're we're too good at it. But we're not good at all, really, when you think about the the waste that is involved in the destruction of the systems that we need for reasons other than pounds of meat. We need systems that generate oxygen, that maintain the biodiversity of a planet that keeps us alive. And I, I keep saying to people who want to listen, the most important thing we take from the ocean is our existence. It's our existence. We, we owe our, not just our livelihoods here and there, but our life depends on an ocean that works in our favor. And now we've got knowledge that backs it up. And now you can see it. So can we adapt and change armed with new knowledge? Well, 50 years from now, I guess we'll have an answer for that. Either we will have made progress in the right direction because we've used the knowledge we've got to protect the systems that make our lives possible, or we will have failed to do so. And the kids, believe me, they're watching.
0: They're watching, and hopefully they're devising better systems than we have now, because this trawler, if you're not familiar with this that Sylvia was describing, it's as if we wanted to just pick this little sweet little um, plant right here and we wiped out absolutely (laughs) everything exactly just to get that one thing like Mm. we're eating just this tiny fraction of what it is that is being captured um, with these bulldozers as you said yesterday you said clear clear cutting cutting. exactly exactly so it's an astonishing way to do things and it again is embedded with this hubris of like ah, we're just going to take it all out who cares you know and you're explaining like if we want to live in the future we should start caring now and you know i i'm thinking also of what you had said in the new yorker because you mentioned this idea of not valuing the fish until they ended up on the plate and we also don't value the water or the air or the soil until we damage it and then we pay to restore it and um and i just want to read this because I, I thought it was so powerful. You said there um, to simply attack. This was in the wake of Deepwater Horizon, which was an oil leak in the United States, and because of our wonderful technology, you could was actually watch it.
1: BP, by the way.
0: It was BP.
1: <laughs> Listen up.
0: <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, is any is any are any of those companies noble? I mean, we could go back to Exxon. I'm just wondering. We could name all the names, couldn't we? Are they what? Are, are, they? are there are any of these? I mean, are any are any petroleum companies noble? Are any of them? I mean, it could have been they, Exxon. It could have been BP. I'm just I'm yeah. simply asking. Well, they're not
1: really bad guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're not. They're responding to us, the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, they're just doing the normal thing. There's a market for oil, coal, gas. They're responding to shareholders. Um, they're not. Um, out to kill the planet, they're out to make make a profit. That's what they do, and some are more responsible than others. And, and there are ev- there's plenty of evidence that some of the offshore activities have been done with great care, not not looking at what the consequences of burning fossil fuels, but just the the methods for finding and drilling obtaining, shipping, whatever it is, uh, an effort to be res- the most responsible that you can possibly be, more attention to uh, safety and aware of the consequences and doing everything possible to avoid catastrophe. And In the Gulf of Mexico, it's pretty clear that there were some lapses in that respect in terms of what should have and could could have and should have been done to be prepared in the Event that there would be a, a spill of the sort that did happen, um, it was true with the Exxon Valdez too the place the commitment to have safety protocols in place were not honored, whether it was in the piloting of the ship or the cleanup that occurred after the the ship went aground and in the case of the BP event uh, there was this Great puzzle. How do you stop a gush of oil that is a mile underwater?
0: Did you all see this here in Australia? They were using golf balls and hair. They were just, you know, audacious. And you said at the time in the New Yorker, you said to simply attack the most visible damage, to wipe the rocks on the beach with paper towels. That was
1: in the Exxon Valdez spill.
0: Ah. Okay, sorry, is almost laughable. It, it was. What do you do with the paper towels? <laughs> what angers me greatly, and I think this points to another access of, or uh, opportun- avenue of opportunity for us, is the policies that make such an abomination possible. This really is a policy issue, and it seems like such an obvious place to apply money and effort. There are resources, there is money, and there is authority.
1: Well, and there are alternatives to using the fossil fuels as the primary underpinnings of, to power our civilization. Um, and, and we are in transition right now. I mean, if we are going to make this, get through this time into the next century and beyond, the better use of solar energy as the key there are other sources with wind and other, other answers to how do we power our civilization. We want to continue to power our civilization forward, but there, we just need to get on with it, and we're subsidizing the extraction of fossil fuels, and we're not accounting for the real cost. If we did a proper accounting of the real cost, much of what has been done and it continues to be done, could not, we couldn't justify it because it just wouldn't make sense. Maybe the the lower cost or the price now for, for oil in particular is a blessing in disguise in that it's not cost effective to drill in places or to, to use some of the extreme methods that have been developed in recent years to squeeze the last drop out of out of the deposits that remain. Anyway, I rant.
0: <laughs> no, you rave, you rave. But I am going to open up um, to questions from the audience. Thanks very much. So um, you said about um, we've, we've taken this time to get to technology to know the problem, that we've got this problem. But I think um, for quite a while there's been indigenous leaders saying we need to change the way we've been doing things, you know, that, that, our, that our kind of white imperialist extractive kind of mentality is, is, is going to destroy the planet and, uh, and I suppose one thing a lot of indigenous cultures do have is a spiritual reverence and so do you think um, as well as this knowledge we've got is that going to be enough to 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 change us or do we need some spiritual reverence for the planet as well
1: whatever it takes <laughs> and knowing is is a critical place to start when you know there's a chance you'll care you can't care if you don't know But it isn't just knowledge. I mean, people smoke even though they know the consequences. But if they are motivated for reasons beyond the facts and figures, they might choose to change their ways. That if their kids say, why are you doing that, dad or mom? (laughs) It might touch you more than knowing that it's not good for you. And so your suggestion that there are other Values, other ways to provoke change through spiritual um, motivation. But in the end, it should be common sense. Look, if your life depends on taking care of the planet, why wouldn't you do everything you could? If not for you, because some of these processes will move slowly enough so that you'll continue to breathe for the rest of your life, (laughs) <laughs> air is still with us 20% of the oxygen is still in the atmosphere but imagine if you, the people you care about the kids coming along or maybe you do care about how it will, the world will be as a consequence of our actions now and that we should look with respect and to some extent maybe reverence those who preceded us who gave us the benefit of what we now enjoy, whether it's the clothes we wear, the food we take for granted, or, or, or just the ability to reflect on, uh, as never before, who we are, where we've come from, and the capacity to truly influence the future, like no generation before the present time.
0: Thank you. A gentleman at the front has a question. We might have time for one more after this. Very,
2: very, very quickly, um, <coughs> the Al Gore uh, project uh, is an educative process. I just wonder if you could quickly quantify the effectiveness of that. Is that an effective process now or that type of process?
1: Well, I think some of us keep searching for more effective ways to communicate Whatever it takes, and Al Gore's movement, based on the "Inconvenient Truth" book, and then the film, and then his way of enlisting people to become ambassadors, if you will. Uh, I think that there, that has proven to be powerful, but not powerful enough to really make the change quickly enough that it is needed. So any bright ideas you have or anyone has, we should really work together. Uh, I, I see causes for hope in many ways, uh, like Jackson Brown using his power to, to create a song that people like to hear, but they also get the underlying message that if you could be born anywhere in time, choose now. This is it. This is the time. we we'll either Have a future or not, depending on the actions largely taken in the next 10 years. The next 10 years, the most important perhaps in the next 10,000 years. So, what's not to love about being around now? We've got a chance to be heroes for, or not. (laughs) Whatever it is, we'll be remembered as the pivotal point in time.
0: Thank you. And one last question. There's a gentleman there in the hat.
2: Thanks. Um, I know a community, a, a little town, a community that um, the community does great things, and I've I've listed a few of them down while you're talking. Um, they have com- created a community solar groups where where they organised groups to households to buy solar panels and they get them cheaply and they put them on their houses. They have rock pool rambles. They have working bees of all sorts. They uh, protest against fracking and coal mines. Um, they create habitats for wildlife. Um, they've created a marine park.
0: Sir, I'm sorry to and a rush marine you, sanctuary. but do you have a question? Yes, we I We only have two Can minutes you, left.
2: <laughs> well... Can you talk about creating hope by acting local?
1: Oh, yes. Well, it's the power of individuals. Uh, Good ideas spread and success has a way of begetting success, just as sometimes the reverse takes place. But there's a kid in Texas who started picking trash up off the beach and it ballooned into the Center for Marine Conservation, now the Ocean Conservancy, with with coastal cleanups around the country and has spread internationally. Now, it wasn't just that one young woman who couldn't stand seeing the trash on her beach. She didn't... Nobody told her that she had to go pick it up. She just wanted to make the world better, her backyard. Uh, Others around the world, I'm sure, were similarly motivated, and so you have people taking personal action and being symbols that others can follow. So... That's, you know, it's communication today that may be one of the greatest reasons for hope. That You can see the problems in ways that we couldn't see before. We're able to connect the dots, look at the evidence, find examples of what's working somewhere that you can make work in your household, in your life, in your community or your country. This country, by setting up this amazing Network of protected areas in the exclusive economic zone in 2012 one-third of Australia's waters established for protection as a giant step in, in the, the right direction for Something that has inspired other nations to look at their backyard their areas of jurisdiction to use their power to protect and unfortunately that that Giant step in the right direction has been put on hold for the time being. I hope that it won't be long before that it will really come to life and that protection for your ocean can serve as it has already in theory and inspired other countries to say, yeah, you know, we have the power to look at the part of our country that is blue and do something about it while there's still time. And some nations, like the little island country of Palau, They're looking at 80% of their exclusive economic zone. They're protecting all of their sharks. They're taking bold actions at this point in time, but somebody has to start somewhere. And actually it was this country in 1975 with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority that, that really got things rolling. So examples, personally, locally, nationally. Soon you've got a world it works in a better way. It's there to be done, and this is the time to do it.
0: So go to your deepest place, find your courage and hope, and tell your stories. Thank you so much.